Uh, if you're turning with me to 1 Samuel 17, we are beginning a new series, a three-week series, uh, on this very famous Bible story, David and Goliath. Uh, we just finished a very famous Psalm, Psalm 23, that David penned, and I thought it would be great as we end our summer to spend three weeks considering a very well-known story about David and Goliath. Now, just a few notes about this story. Uh, first, this is one of the most well-known Bible stories um, that everybody knows, whether you're a Christian or even if you're an unbeliever. Uh, everyone knows the David and Goliath type of story, the story of the underdog rising a, a, up against it and defeating the stronger uh, opponent. Uh, that's often a theme carried out in a lot of movies. Um, the other thing about 1 Samuel 17, it is one of the longest stories recorded in the Bible. It's, it's 58 verses long based on this one narrative. And so uh, that's strange. That's unique. And because it's strange and, and unique, it's not a common occurrence. Um, because the author is taking the time to tell us this story, we as the readers need to take the time to listen to the story. So rather than trying to go through it in one sermon, I wanted to take three weeks in it. And here's the third thing I want to say about this. We most uh, often have a tendency to read the Bible in, in a certain kind of way. Uh, we often come to the Bible and we read it like a yearbook. Right? You remember getting yearbooks in, in elementary, middle, high school. Uh, you get a yearbook, and what's the first thing you look for? Yourself, because you're self-centered and you're egocentric. You look for yourself because that you and you expect to find yourself. But if you pick up a biography, you don't finish the biography disappointed that you yourself are not in it. You see, when we come to the Bible, the first thing we look for is ourselves. Where am I? What does it say about me? But 1 Samuel is in the Bible, not because it tells you something to do, but because it tells you about someone to delight in, right? And so that's how you need to understand 1 Samuel 17. And so that's what we're going to do today. There's not going to be uh, much practical application or pragmatic advice. That's not the purpose of 1 Samuel 17. The purpose is to lead you to praise and adore the one who is worthy. And so with those eyes, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 17. Our series is entitled, God's Help for Our Giant problem. So please stand with me. And in your standing, it is our act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's holy word. We're reading it in verses 1 all the way to verse 24. So friends, hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. 
When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to an encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once again? Father, give to us uh, sensitive eyes and a sensitive heart and a sensitive mind so we, we would receive from you what your word teaches us. This is a familiar story. And all those details that we are so familiar with, speak and use them in new ways into our, our hearts to rejuvenate and refresh us. But also, Lord, we confess that there are things in the text we don't understand or that are new to us. And by your spirit, illuminate our hearts and convict us in new ways and inspire us to greater worship. For the worship we bring is to a great God. And so, Father, even in this time of preaching, let it not be it about us, but about you, so you would receive the glory and praise in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a man who went to the doctor once complaining that he was hurting all over his body. He said, from head to toe, everything that is touched aches in pain. Now the doctor thought that was unique and said, well, why don't you touch your neck? The man touched his neck. Ouch! The doctor looked surprised. Well, touch your elbow. Oof! Oh, quite strange indeed. I told you, doc, it hurts all over. Well, touch your foot. Ah! Hmm. Well, sir, the good news is I know exactly what's wrong with you. Tell it to me straight, doc. What do I have? You have a broken finger. <laughs> you see, sometimes one broken thing can bring pain everywhere. One thing gone wrong makes everything else go wrong. And that's what's happening in Israel. Except what's the one thing that has gone wrong? What's the one broken thing in Israel? It's the king. King Saul is a broken king. He's the first king of Israel, but more fatally for the people, he is the failed king of Israel. And because of his failure, because of his fear, Israel is doomed. And that's what 1 Samuel 17 is all about. 
the trouble that Israel is in because their king is a coward, a coward. Now, in order to understand 1 Samuel 17, you need to know a little bit about the history of not only Israel, but about Saul. You need to know that Saul became a king much earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And in that chapter, when the author introduces him to us, this is what he has to say about Saul. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Right? It's an intentional and interesting description of Saul, one that focuses on his outward appearance. Man, he was a good looking guy. You know, when my mother and I were talking once about presidents and I asked her mom, you know, you've lived in America for quite a while. Now, who's your favorite president? And she didn't have to think about it long before she said, John F. Kennedy. And I said, John F. Kennedy, he was assassinated 10 years before you immigrated. What do you know about John F. Kennedy? And she looked at me and she said, well, he's good looking. <laughs> you see, if you ask the everyday Israelite citizen, why should Saul be king? They would have all responded, because well, he's good looking. But because his qualification was so superficial, not long after, quickly he becomes disqualified as king. You see, looking the part doesn't mean you're right for the part. What happens is that in 1 Samuel 13, Saul authorizes uh, an unlawful sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to against God's command. So that's strike one. And then Saul in chapter 15 disobeys God's command against the Amalekites by not destroying everything he's supposed to. Strike two. And so by the time we get to chapter 17, yeah, Saul is still on the throne, but God has already written his judgment in the stone. Saul will lose his kingdom. There will be another. And that's very important to understand David and Goliath because this is chapter 15. Then what happens in chapter 16 is God tells them precisely who's going to be the king. He's identified, he's anointed the king, and that's going to be David. David is going to be the next king, the little shepherd boy from the house of Jesse. And so we're told in chapter 16, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so... With all this history, when we get to chapter 17, this story that we know to be this epic struggle, competition, battle between David and Goliath really isn't about David and Goliath, at least not at first. Because if you read the story, David and Goliath only confront each other in the second half of the story. The whole first half is not concerned about David and Goliath. You know who the real battle is? Who the real struggle is between? David and Saul. Because the lingering question is, who is the king Israel really needs? Is it David or is it Saul? Now that's an important way to approach the text because it gets us to ask the question, who is the king we need? Who is the king we're trusting in? Who is the king we're looking to? You see, 1 Samuel 17 isn't in the Bible so that you can face your uh, unfair boss and your belligerent coworker on Monday. This chapter isn't in the Bible so you can overcome your financial debt for you to have victory over your self-esteem issues. Simply put, 1 Samuel 17 is not in the Bible for you to defeat the Goliaths of your life and overcome the giant obstacles. 1 Samuel 17 is in the Bible because God's people need a courageous king who will fight for them against their greatest enemy. So here's our gospel truth, our one sentence summary. God provides for us a courageous king to defeat our giant problem. 
God provides us a courageous king to defeat our giant problem. Now, because this is a narrative, I don't want to go through points. I just want to walk through the text. Our story begins today with a perfect setting. Two armies come up to battle at the Valley of Elah, face to face. Now, battles like this aren't fought anymore. It would be foolish to fight this way. This is the way they fought. You remember the Revolutionary War when they just stood up and they put muskets and they fired and then the first group went down then the next group came. That was how the ancients fought. And so in verse two, it says this, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now we tend to, because it's such a familiar story, read it without slowing down. And the picture we have is, oh, the Philistines here and the Israelites here. But the author is not saying that. The author is saying something else. He's saying something much more particular, much more focused. Look at what he says in verse two. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. So it's not just the Philistines versus the Israelites. It's the Philistines and Saul and the Israelites. And the reason he's singling out Saul is because as the king, it was the king's job to stand as Israel's champion. It was the king's job to stand first, to defend the people, right? Saul was Joan of Arc before Joan of Arc. Saul was William Wallace before William Wallace. And so the author, he doesn't mention anybody else in Israel except for Saul, because Saul is the man. In the same way, he doesn't mention anybody else in the Philistine army except for Goliath. Goliath of Gath. Now let's read verse four. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now a champion, what does that mean? A champion was a representative of the army one whom you would send to fight on behalf of the entire nation. And the reason they did this made complete sense. Rather than having thousands of people charging each other and thousands of people needlessly dying, you would send a champion from each side and they would fight and they would determine the future and the fate of the nation. Except when these champions came out and they met in the middle, they didn't come out going, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. They came out with sword and spear and javelin. So Goliath is named as Philistine's champion. The question is, where's Israel's champion? Now the author has already told us who the champion is. It's Saul. He is the king. One of the jobs of a king, according to 1 Samuel 8, is this, uh, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That was the king's job. He was the anointed champion of Israel. You know, Goliath never should have said, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Goliath should have stepped out. And before he said, choose a man, Goliath should have stepped out and Saul should have already been at the line. Knowing his duty, knowing that that is what he's called to do as king, willing to fight for the people. And the author is drawing this up. Why? To show us that Israel needs a courageous king who's willing to fight for his people. But what does Israel have? A cowardly king who's hiding behind his people. So verse 11 says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now it's fine if all Israel heard and was afraid, but the king should not be afraid. You see, so number one, why should Saul be Israel's champion because he's the king. That's what kings do. But there's a second reason. 
And a lot of people, a lot of scholars have noted that 1 Samuel 17 gives a lot of details. That's why it's 58 verses long. And it gives the most extensive uh, description of military equipment in the Bible. It's just so many details. Why are you giving 10 cheeses to the commander? Why are 10 breads necessary? Why all these, all these details? Because the author is drawing, he's showing us that something is really important. And what he's showing is really this. Saul should be Israel's champion, not just because he's king, but because Saul is the most qualified to be Israel's champion. Saul is the Goliath of Israel. Now, he's going to make this clear. The author is going to make this clear by showing us three things, comparing three things that make a champion, right? If you want to be a champion, here's what you need. You need stature. You need resources. You need experience. That makes a king. Stature, resources, experience. And so first, if you look at verse four, because this is the way Goliath is described, verse four says, Goliath was a man whose height was six cubits and a span. Six cubits and a span. You know how tall he was? Nine feet, nine inches. Think about how tall that is. And for a point of reference, a basketball rim is 10 feet tall. Right? So he's three inches short of the top of his head hitting a basketball rim. And so when you saw Goliath, you did not see a man, you saw a mountain. The second thing we're told is his resources. Verse five says he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. So a helmet of bronze, coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now that doesn't mean anything to us until we put a number that we're used to. 5,000 shekels of bronze means that his chest armor weighed 126 pounds. 126 pounds, right? Which shows two things. One, how strong the armor is. Second, how strong is the man who's carrying around 126 pounds? I mean, can you imagine going to battle with that? That's like taking one of the youth group students, strapping him to your chest and going out to battle a fight. Not only that, but verse seven continues, the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam and his spears had weighed 600 shekels of iron which means that the head of the spear alone was 15 pounds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go bowling, I used to trust a nine pounder. 15 is way too heavy, let alone going out to battle with a spear where the head alone weighs 15 pounds. What's the author doing? He's describing Goliath like a general is pitching the newest weapons upgrade to the fighter jet or to the tank. He's showing off Goliath and saying, look at him equipped with the latest and most technologically advanced equipment. And thirdly, then we're told about Goliath's experience. Now we didn't read this, but in verse 33, Saul says to David about Goliath, he has been a man of war from his youth. Now, some of you have played instruments since you were a kid. Some of you who play certain sports, some of you are parents who are making your kids play instruments and sports. But Goliath, what did he do? What was his extracurricular? He made war since he was a kid. He was in the under 20 army. He fought in, you know, the club and travel teams <laughs> for battle. It was no surprise then. He is the, he's the champion. Who should we send? Goliath, look at him. It makes sense then why he's so confident. Verse 10, he stands before the army and what does he say? I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's not afraid. He's not scared. Utterly confident. 
He's a worthy champion, choice among the people because of his stature, his resources, and his experience. So another question is, who in Israel can match up against him? Who in Israel? And the author's saying one man. There is one man. Because there's already a man, if you've been reading 1 Samuel, that, that the author has described has anything similar to the same amount of stature, resources, and experience. Who is that? It's the king. You see, Saul is every, you know, Korean parent's, you know, ideal dream son. He's handsome. And then we're told he's tall. In parentheses, then he went to Harvard. But uh, he's tall. You know, it's really interesting that the Bible, it gives you these details. And you're like, why is this in here? But it's all there for a reason. We're told a couple times that he's a good looking guy. But there's something else the Bible is emphasizing more. And that's the stature of Saul. So if you actually look at 1 Samuel 9, it says this, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And then again in another chapter, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Why is the author saying that? Because he's saying if anybody in Israel matches Goliath in height and in stature, it's Saul. Second, the author then mentions uh, something that seemed quite random if you read this earlier in chapter 13. And when you first read it, you go, why is this in here? This is not relevant to the story at all, but it is relevant. Because if you read in 1 Samuel 13, this is what it says. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Nobody in Israel was equipped with the military technology and weapons to fight Goliath, except for Saul and Jonathan. And let me tell you, only one of them is king. Later, we learn in verse 38, Saul actually has the same armor as Goliath. Remember, Goliath had a helmet of bronze and a coat of armor. What does chapter 38 or verse 38 say? Saul clothed David with his armor, Saul's armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his, on his head and clothed him with a coat of Male. What's the point? If anybody in Israel matched Goliath's resources, it is Saul. Here's the third thing we see. Saul was a man of much experience in war. He constantly led his armies to victory. So 1 Samuel 14 is giving you um, Saul's military resume, right? If you went to Saul's LinkedIn, here's the list. Here's what you would read. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly. If anybody in Israel matched Goliath's experience, it was Saul. What is the author doing? The author is beautifully comparing our man Saul against the great enemy Goliath, showing that he alone in Israel can fight the giant. So you're reading this, you're understanding the story, But the problem is, where's the king? Where is Saul? And you find him hiding behind everybody else. You know, the whole point, the angst you should be feeling in this story at this point is uh, discouragement, dissatisfaction, and disappointment. Where is the king? Verse 16 says, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening, twice a day. For 40 days, he came out and he challenged Israel. Meaning, you know what? 
Saul had 80 chances to step up and be the king Israel needed him to be. 80 chances, 80 opportunities, which also means 80 times Saul failed to be the king Israel needed. 80 times Saul failed to be what God called him to be. Right? Have you ever had that happen to you? Somebody asks you a question and you say it and you answer it. You do something in response and then the next day you're thinking about it and you're regretting. You say, oh man, if I just had one more chance, Right? You've argued with your spouse. Oh, and the next day you're like, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> next time this happens, I'm going to say this. We all play that role, that scenario in our head. If this happened one more time. But you know what? Here's the thing about Saul. If it happened again, he wouldn't have changed. 80 times he had a redo. Groundhog Day, 80 times, 80 chances. Same thing. Failed each time. Why? Because he is a coward. And the whole point of Samuel is that you're reading it and you're getting frustrated at Saul. If you're not getting frustrated at Saul at this point, you're not understanding the story correctly. See, we're told, oh, you read the stories about David and Goliath and so we just skip to the end. No, there's 24 verses for a reason. Is there anybody in Israel with godly, kingly courage? And the answer is yes, there is one. But it comes in the most unlikeliest form. Kingly, godly courage doesn't come in the face of a battle-tested soldier, but in a boy-faced shepherd. Because verse 12 comes as our flicker of hope. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. David comes on the scene as the hope. But what were we told about David? He was a shepherd boy. The question is, if you're an Israelite and you're reading this, how could David be God's provision in their time of need? That's because God's doing what he's done since day one. He is reversing everything you think you know about courage and victory and power. Because verse, 1 Samuel 17 teaches in God's kingdom, how do you go up? You go down. How are you first? You're last. How do you show might? You're humble. How are you strong? You're weak. You see, David is Israel's champion, not because he is anything like Goliath, but precisely because he is nothing like Goliath. David had no stature. Verse 14 tells us he was the youngest and the smallest. Why wasn't David at war? Because he wasn't even old enough to enlist in Israel's army. The minimum age was 20. He was a boy. David had no resources. He went out to battle in verse 40, not with the weapons of war, but went with nothing but a staff, a sling, and some stones. David had no experience. Verses 17 and 18 say the only time David stepped foot on the battlefield was when he was bringing, bringing uh, lunch to his big brothers. David was no warrior. He was more like a waiter. No soldier, more like a server. And yet David is the champion Israel needs. Why? Because godly, kingly courage does not require size or sword. Saul had both, and yet he was afraid. David had neither, and yet he stood to fight Goliath. See, by using David and not Saul, God was teaching his people, listen, it's me who's going to provide the one who will deliver you. 
It's me who will provide the one who will defend you. And that's the lesson we need to learn today. What God is speaking to us as Christians, the same hope, the same promise. Because David was never really about David. David was a mere placeholder in history awaiting another. Even Goliath was never really about Goliath, but he was pointing to something else. Because ultimately, the giant problems we face in our lives are not COVID. They're not disease. They're not the stresses of family and sibling rivalry. Ultimately, the Goliath, the giant problem we face is not a flesh and blood. It is a problem of our guilt and our sin and the eternal condemnation that it brings. What is our giant problem? It is not a mountain of a, of a man. It's a mountain of our sin. What will we do? And just like the Israelites, we are helpless. We are powerless to do anything. What can you do to defeat your sin and your guilt and your condemnation? Bring every weapon you could think of. Your righteousness, your obedience, your sacrifice, your repentance, your performance. And yet the giant problem of our sin remains. And to that God provides just as he sent David for Israel when they had nobody to fight for them, God has sent us one greater than David who fights and wins and conquers. God sent us one whose kingly character surged through him in his blood and in his nature. From within, this king beamed with majestic royalty both human and divine. Of the earth, he was a king, born in the line of David. Of heaven, he was a king, for he was God himself. Jesus Christ is the true king, a courageous champion sent to defend and to defeat our giant problem. Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of David. And when Jesus came, he did not take 40 days to decide whether or not he would fight for you. Rather, before eternity passed, before the foundation of the world, he was committed to save and to rescue. That he marched straight to the valley to face and to fight the enemy, even before you knew there was an enemy to be delivered from. And so unlike Saul, he did not cower in self-preservation, but he offered himself in selfless sacrifice because he knew that your victory required his defeat and your life required his death. He was not afraid. He did not back down. You see, this is the marked difference between Saul and David. Twice we're told that the men of Israel were afraid. In verses 11 and verse 24. But here's the thing. Listen, Israel was afraid. But Israel's salvation was never based on whether they were afraid or not. Israel's salvation was based on one thing, whether their king was afraid or not. You see, look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, they heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul heard 
And he was just as afraid as all of the men. And because Saul was just as afraid, he failed to save anybody but himself. But look at verse 23. And David heard. And who was afraid? All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. As a greater king, David also heard, but David was not afraid. Although the men of Israel continued to be afraid, it didn't matter. Their weakness didn't matter. Their cowardice didn't matter. Why? Because their salvation rested on the courage of another. You see, because David was unafraid, the nation was saved. That was good news for Israel, but there's greater news for us. That one greater than David has come. And through his courage, not your courage, he saves the world. He saves you. This story is not about get some more courage. It's about look to the courageous one. Friends, do you believe that salvation is not based on anything about you, nor is it based on anything you have or anything you lack, but rests entirely on Christ? That it was he, not you, who exhibited the courage that took him to the cross, wherein he became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe that this king, in his sacrifice, reduced the mountain of your sin so that he could raise you up on his hill of righteousness. Christ the king, he saves. God has provided this king for us in Jesus. See, again, we read this passage, but what are we supposed to do? Delight. What practical advice is there? What pragmatic actions can I take? Praise and adoration. First Samuel is calling us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to sit and wonder at the king of kings who would come down and in his courage defeat our giant problem. So we would rest in his courage and not our own. Let's pray.